before we get started, I'm collecting Web3 Galaxy Brain listener testimonies for a new section on the website. If you love the show, please send me a tweet-length testimony saying why you listen and what makes the show special for you. DM me your testimony at Nicholas with four leading ends on Twitter or Telegram or at Nicholas on Warpcast. Thank you. Welcome to Web3 Galaxy Brain. My name is Nicholas. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people building Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. My guest today is Sam Hart. Sam is a developer, artist, and biochemist. He is head of product and strategy at Skip Protocol and co-founder at TimeWave Labs. He has contributed to the Cosmos ecosystem for years and is also co-founder of Folia, a blockchain art collective. On September 1st, 2023, Sam wrote a long and detailed post to the MakerDAO forums, pitching Cosmos as an interesting option for the app chain aspect of Maker's Endgame. Inspired by that post, this episode is an introduction to Cosmos for EVM devs. In this conversation, Sam and I discuss the major components of Cosmos, Comet BFT, Cosmos SDK, IBC, VMs like CosmWasm, and client tooling like CosmJS. We also compare the design philosophy of Cosmos and Ethereum. Good starting points for interested builders are included at the end of the interview. It was fun chatting with Sam about Cosmos, which is an ambitious project whose many flexible affordances can make it challenging to get a handle on. My thanks to Sam for sharing his knowledge. I hope you enjoy the show. As always, this show is provided as entertainment and does not constitute legal, financial, or tax advice or any form of endorsement or suggestion. Crypto has risks, and you alone are responsible for doing your research and making your own decisions. Hey, everybody. Hey, Sam. How's it going? It's good. It's good. Uh, it's morning time here, but you're in Berlin, right? I am. It is 2.40 here. All right. Afternoon. Not so early. Uh, it's good to have you. I'm excited to talk about Cosmos. Uh, are you excited to yeah. talk about Cosmos? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So... This conversation started because of the post you made in the MakerDAO forums. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe, uh, I don't know if you wanted to touch on that post or, or actually my, my first real question is, how did you get involved in Cosmos in the first place? Yeah, um, we, can, we can start there. So uh, maybe start even further, further back. So I, um, I moved to New York like right after the financial crisis. And basically was there like during Occupy Wall Street it was kind of a big influence on my thinking at the time, kind of exposed me to a lot of the the kind of underbelly of like financial politics. And I was working as a researcher at the time doing um, basically biomed biomedical research, like genomics research in the city. Post Occupy, a bunch of my friends started uh, these kind of like new institution projects. Um, and those, some of those were like art projects, some of those were like startups, and like the, those kind of like diverted into what would become like 2016, 17 era ICOs. So I ended up just kind of like helping a number of these people on, um, on these early projects. And I just had a lot of fun doing that. I kind of did it on the side until it just became basically a full full-time job. And I ended up getting some offers to yeah, join crypto full-time. I was getting kind of disillusioned with, with lab work and moved into crypto. I also moved to Berlin, kind of used that as an opportunity to like, I don't know, convince myself that uh, you know, new, new career, new continent, like new life. 
and yeah, did a bunch of consulting for for a while. Um, I, I worked with a number of different projects. Some of them were Cosmos projects, actually. And and then um, when the pandemic started, I was living in Berlin. Um, this was right as one of the founding teams kind of melted down. My best friend in Berlin at the time, Billy Brennekamp, was at was at uh, that team, Tenorman Inc. And he was kind of tapped to migrate uh, the engineering team to uh, the Interchain Foundation, which is the kind of foundation associated with the Cosmos Project. And uh, he wanted some help cleaning that up. So I was the first hire there. And yeah, I, I, I didn't... I mean, the rationale is like, I didn't want to be doing freelance work during a pandemic. So I uh, jumped into Cosmos. And it was like pretty messed up at the time. Um, so our, our job was just to like pick up all the pieces and set up contracts with this like fragmented array of um, of teams that had kind of spun out of of Tenorman Inc. And yeah, just just kind of like turn that into a a functioning ecosystem that like the first thing that we did was ship IBC, the the kind of core messaging protocol. And um, and then it's just been kind of a you know an incremental series of fixes since then. And the ecosystem is you know, actually functioning quite well today, um, still has its, you know, sore spots, but um, the technology is like, is really coming together. Um, a lot of the core kind of financial primitives are there. And so, so just before we jump into Cosmos, I'm just curious, what kind of uh, yeah. genetics research were you doing or biochemistry research? Yeah, I did a bunch of things. So um, I was in the industry for 10 years. Oh, wow. I started out doing protein folding research. Uh, so like simulations of uh, biomolecules and like protein DNA interactions, things like that. And then I um, moved into a lab that was doing, it, it was it was really kind of at the heart of this um, uh, high throughput sequencing Moore's law phenomenon where the cost of yeah, genomic sequencing went from like a billion dollars to a thousand dollars in a matter of like 10 years. Mm-hmm. So we were getting like all these new data sets I was doing kind of cross, like population studies uh, with brand new data sets, like different um, cancer types. And that um, like precipitous drop in the cost of sequencing was um, based on like a computational approach to reconstituting more raggedly sequenced DNA. Is that right? Or or actually using the biological system to uh, reorder the like shotgun sequenced data? Yeah, it was a kind of a combination, a creative combination of things. Um, uh, one was uh, the the reconstruction of fragmented data sets so that you could kind of stochastically uh, rebuild a set of, of independent fragments as long as you had some understanding that there was like, uh, they were randomly broken. So yeah, it was part like kind of computational and then part uh, procedural there was um, some some very interesting uh, kind of chemical innovations where um, basically you'd like break up fragments of DNA, bind them to uh, like magnetic beads, and then you could uh, you could um, kind of adhere those beads to like in you know a surface and have like solvents eat away at them at like specific rates. It was it's pretty insane. Yeah, um, insane. 
yes, set of like innovations that had to, had to all kind of interlock to make that work. Very cool. All right, we won't we won't dwell on the genetics too long, but uh, I think it's worth <laughs> worth worth noting that you have a, a serious yeah. background in that. And also, again, we won't dip into it too much, but also in art uh, and also the encounter of art and blockchain. You have a lot of experience yeah. too. Yeah, my parents are both artists, and I yeah grew up in an artist household. Still, kind of keep it as a as a passion of mine. And I do some NFT stuff with a a gallery called Folia. Right. Uh, and there's another episode that you guessed on uh, that people can go check out if they want to hear more about the art and blockchain side. Um, yeah. So, so jumping into Cosmos then. Uh, so Cosmos is, came out of this 2017 era originally? Yeah, I was not involved at, at that point, but I kind of saw saw it happen from afar. And did, so, what was the impetus for it at that time or, or when you rejoined the project a couple of years later? So I might get the dates slightly wrong on this, but like about 20... 15. Uh, basically, the one of the founders of Cosmos, Jay Kwan, um, was uh, working on a consensus protocol called Tendermint, uh, now called Comet BFT, but originally called Tendermint. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, basically was seeing what was going on in Bitcoin and uh, kind of actively involved in um, conversations there. And uh, felt, and so Bitcoin did, uh, kind of created a novel consensus protocol that's proved uh, the like longest chain proof of work. And JCon was trying to kind of apply classical BFT principles to um, creating a Byzantine fault tolerant like public blockchain network mm-hmm. or system. Um, so uh, he was kind of pushing those ideas forward. Uh, ended up connecting with the other co-founder of Cosmos, um, Ethan Buckman. Um, who had a distributed systems also and a biophysics background. It's a bit of a common theme in Cosmos. That's interesting. Unexpected. And yeah. Uh, and they they first tried to apply that to more of a, um, a kind of commercial, like private blockchain context. And then kind of realized that uh, really kind of where this was most interesting was in a public blockchain context. And so they came up with this idea of like, okay, we, we have these EFT chains uh, with a proof of stake system and we can network those together, um, you know, similar to a, a kind of internet topology where you have like servers that are networked together with a standard networking protocol. And, and um, they wrote the paper. The premise even back then was that they would be smart contract uh, chains. Agnostic. Um, I, it really did kind of start with this like application specific chain design. Um, so that could include smart contracts, but they they were kind of more interested in like um, the the vertical integration of the uh, the application, which may not necessarily use smart contracts. So you, you were aware of it at the time, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't your main squeeze. You're working on other things. Um, and so you, you land there a little later and, and yeah, I mean, I intersect with it, uh, I intersect with it kind of before actually working at the ICF full time. I worked on a project called foam, which is like a geospatial blockchain project that Mm. used Tendermint for a while. Did some consulting for them. I, yeah, I, there, there's some very, very interesting projects in Cosmos that I ended up just kind of like, uh, meeting them and, and working on some small um, like contract things uh, for, for kind of jumping jumping into it. 
So the, the, the two main things that I want to get through in this conversation are one, for people who are more familiar with EVM, get a kind of technical architectural background for what Cosmos is, how it compares to EVM for people who are more familiar with that and maybe understand some of the unique affordances of Cosmos. And the, the other thread I want to address is kind of what the cultural side of Cosmos is. And I think you're getting at that a little bit with sort of dabbling in different projects contractually, starting to sound a little bit like what the Ethereum ecosystem uh, has to offer in terms of a bunch of projects that are kind of interrelated on the same stack and friendly to one another, sharing uh, people working on them. Is, is that a fair read? Uh, yeah, I've gotten some exposure to Cosmos Project before. There's really interesting community there. And I, um, yeah, when Billy kind of asked me to, to join the ICF, I understood a little bit about what was going on, the architecture. Um, but also, uh, there's definitely something that resonated with the, the vision, um, just the general kind of like topology of the network. It is a very bottom-up kind of system. And yeah, that, that just like spoke to me. So that, that was part of my interest in, in joining and helping to push that forward. Great. Two threads that I want to address in this conversation are, first of all, for an EVM familiar person, what is the Cosmos architecture? What are the pieces? And how does the overall picture compare to EVM uh, for people who are more familiar with that? And what unique affordances, affordances does it have? And the second thread I'd like to get to is this uh, more cultural piece about what the mm -hmm. vibe is of the Cosmos ecosystem. And from what you said about uh, dabbling in different projects contractually early on, it sounds like it has some shades of what might be familiar to someone who, who knows the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, is that a fair read mm -hmm. of the, the cultural ecosystem there? Yeah, I can speak to that a bit. So... Yeah, there's some similarities and differences with Ethereum. So from uh, so the Cosmos architecture from the EVM or like Solidity perspective, if you're on ETH main chain, ap applications take the form of a smart contract or set of smart contracts and a front end application typically. And the you're, so what is the smart contract doing? It's basically defining a state machine. It's relying on um, the Ethereum virtual machine to uh, advance that state machine um, to kind of validate that um, that you're advancing the state machine correctly, and then it it relies on the consensus engine to make sure that everybody agrees that uh, that that sequence is correct. In the Cosmos architecture, basically, you can imagine like taking that um, that Ethereum contract. And putting it on, you know, you're, you're forking the entire Ethereum code base. You're just taking that contract, and you have nothing, no other state on on the system. So now you have you have your own consensus engine, uh, you have your own EVM, and you have your own contracts. And now you know you're you're on an island, <laughs> and because nobody else is here, you can you can start changing all the pieces below you. So. If you want to increase the block times, you can do that. Uh, if you want to make changes to the EVM, you can do that. If you want to, if you don't want to use Solidity anymore, you can you can use something else. You can actually you can actually just throw away the entire EVM and write uh, the same application, but just into like the guest node. Like, and like this, this is like a precompile, um, but except that literally there's no EVM. Like the, you just 
it's all uh, it's all just part of the binary. And you know, so so that's kind of like the the logic that you're that you would follow as a Solidity dev. I mean, you're already kind of seeing this in Ethereum today with these L2s that are, you know, trying to mostly stay Ethereum compatible, but like then they'll add like a couple, you know, so like gas will be a little bit different or they'll add like one op code or something like that. Sure. Because it's just uh, really helpful. Yeah. R1 verification or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then most recently, like you're starting to see. Um, a little bit of this like application specific rollup idea, um, which is a little bit. If you're coming from a Cosmos perspective, it's a little bit like the, this looks like a toy. But um, the <laughs> it, what what about it looks like a toy? Because just messing with the EVM and messing with the relaying infrastructure for getting data back to L1 is like bolted on relative to how essential it is to Cosmos. Uh, mainly because the the kind of coolest stuff that you can do with Cosmos is all like at the lower l- layer, you know. So you're you're going to be like ripping out parts of consensus and changing that, or the P2P layer, or um, changing the execution model, or like you know making like adding parallelism, just like stuff that's it, it's not it's not like available to the EVM. It's like not within the EVM developers kind of like worldview to. To, to be stuff. doing those things, yeah. So, so just before we get, uh, because it, it, it's tough, because it seems with Cosmos, it's like um, one of these things where anything can be changed, and so it's hard to get a, a handle on what what the essence is in a sort of default setup. So, there's Comet 100%. Comet BFT. So, this is the uh, Byzantine fault tolerant consensus protocol. Mm-hmm. Some things I was reading, it has sub second block times. Is that right? Uh, so is there, I guess, a, 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 say like a smart contract developer doesn't really think too much about that. Maybe they just think about what the performance characteristics are of the L2 that they're picking if they're going to deploy on something other than L1. But they don't really think about mm-hmm. the consensus protocol too much. So maybe can can you give me a little yeah. picture well, of Comet, do, Comet BFT? They do. Yeah. I mean, so as someone who's deploying on L2, they might think about like, is this a ZK rollup? Is this an optimistic rollup? What is the kind of finality conditions? Like, right. what happens when I exit? Those are, you know, you're kind of having, you have this kind of like indirect like relationship to the consensus protocol, but it's it's a little bit um, oblique in the, and, and I guess you, you might also think about like the sequencer, which is uh, typically kind of married to the consensus protocol. In, um, when you have your own chain, but yeah, Cosmos is is like a very different paradigm. So the one one way that I typically start with like a explaining Cosmos is it is not Cosmos is not like a specific instantiation of a tech of like a soft piece of software like Ethereum is. Mm. Um, like Ethereum is is like a singular network that everybody's running like the same. Uh, like bytecode compatible clients. Cosmos is is the the closest thing that I can the closest analogy I think is like a, a it's it's a design pattern basically. So like the Jam stack is a good example if anybody's familiar with this. Like the Jam stack is not actually any specific pieces of technology. It's like it is a, a set of modular components. Any of which could actually be swapped out for and for another thing, but it's like you can create a static site 
with the Jamstack and like plug these things together, you know, and you can swap them out and whatever. Similar idea with Cosmos. It is a design pattern where that has a consensus protocol, uh, an application or application framework, and a networking protocol. That's that's it. Um, so any of those could be swapped out, and people, in fact, have swapped all of them out in different instances. People have changed uh, a bunch. Of people have changed the application framework. They're like written their own. IBC is like kind of the what a lot of Cosmos people like rally around the most. So that that's kind of the, the thing that's been like least swapped. That's but inter-blockchain um, communication. Yes, that's the networking protocol, inter-blockchain communication. So we have consensus protocol, application framework, and a communications protocol. And that's mm-hmm. Comet BFT. Application framework is whichever you choose. I guess the, the standard yeah. is Cosmos, Cosmos SDK. SDK is, yeah. okay. Cosmos SDK is the most popular, but there are others. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, inter-blockchain communication is the communications protocol. So we can kind of think of these three building blocks, which are, you can each swap out, but these are the three things that you need to have a Cosmos. Mm-hmm. Would you call it a Cosmos chain? Yeah. And notably, like we didn't say VM there. So, like, uh, however, a lot of the a lot of Cosmos chains like have VMs. Basically, like plug that into the application framework. So there are Cosmos chains that have EVM. There's actually two two entirely different like EVM implementations. There's actually a third that I heard about the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a Wasm uh, execution environment uh, called Cosmosm. Um, there's a Move execution environment somebody's building there's there's a whole bunch so yeah that that kind of is like nested into the um the application framework similar to how i mean guest doesn't really like divide this quite the same way but like the um the evm um actually like sits in um the geth node and then the geth node actually has the uh, is kind of like integrated quite directly into the consensus protocol. Got it. So maybe we can go through each one in a little bit more detail just to make people familiar. So let's start uh, with the consensus protocol. So Comet BFT, we talked about it a little bit. Yeah, are there any properties that we could uh, or design principles in it that uh, we could share with people? Yeah, so Comet BFT um, is a classical BFT protocol. It is uh, is designed to be... um, relatively simple to understand that's that was one of the big like design goals is um to ensure that it's extremely well specified and kind of intelligible to um to developers is that in contrast to other things that came before it that were harder to understand well yeah bft there's a whole like family of bft protocols and there's still like a lot of discovery being done there and you end up kind of at different points in the trade-off space, um, depending on what you're looking for. So, uh, for instance, Raft is a very simple protocol, but it like kind of has some overhead trade-offs and um, like fault tolerance trade-offs. Paxos is like kind of the old, oldest BFT protocol, as far as I understand, and it has historically been like a little bit challenging to like to reason about. Um, there's like some controversy about that, but anyway, um, Tendermint's very close to PBFT. Um, it's like a couple of kind of minor modifications, which is like very well studied consensus protocol. And yeah, one of the, the kind of primary features is that um, it it'll be very familiar to anyone who has studied 
consensus protocols, like you'll be right at home. It's extremely well specified. Um, it actually has uh, the whole thing's been formally verified. And every time there's a, a modification to the software, the the formal spec basically like generates a set of tests, and the tests are uh, like automatically um, validated against the the implementation. So it's like the yeah, there, there, there's an extreme emphasis on correctness of the protocol. And this is because um, it, it's designed um, with light clients in mind. So this kind of gets into the uh, to IBC, the networking protocol, and how that works. So if you are another chain that wants to talk to, you know, to the first chain, um, you need to validate. But the, the way that the, the verification works is uh, the chain actually needs to, to understand the consensus process of, of its counterparty. Um, it does that with a light client, um, which basically tracks um, validator set updates and, and power changes, uh, those staking power changes. And yeah, so it, it verifies the consensus process um, and will you know, only ad, uh, admit messages that, um, that have been properly verified. So that process needs to be like 100% perfect for this whole network architecture to be secure. Got it. So for, for Comet BFT, um, some properties maybe you could explain a little. Uh, it, you have instant finality? As opposed mm-hmm. to something like proof of work or even Ethereum's proof of stake, uh, which you don't, I don't, you don't have instant finality, yes. right? How, do, yeah, how does so, that achieve that? So this gets a little bit into like the, you know, philosophy or like um, the underpinnings of um, of consensus. So th- there's like a fundamental trade-off in consensus design between between liveness and uh, and correctness, basically. Uh, so, or safety. And Ethereum chooses, at, at, similar to Bitcoin, chooses liveness. They, they kind of locate themselves on that side of the consensus design space. Um, they felt like having information about the chain and knowing that it was still uh, continuing to attempt to construct blocks was more important than uh, an external observer knowing that a block was final. Um, and so you see that in the Ethereum protocol for anybody who's familiar with it. There's a there's like a, a soft confirmation and then there's like a finality gadget that like happens later on. In the, uh, in the Comet BFT case, we kind of put ourselves on the other side of the spectrum. So Comet BFT is safety favoring. And and there's fundamental trade-off here. So like if you're safety favoring, you are not liveness favoring. So if uh, if the if there's some if not enough validators are attesting to to a vote or like to advance the chain, the chain will halt. And that is like preferred in the comet case. Um, and you'll need to to get uh, the remaining kind of voting power on board to adv- continue to advance the, the state machine. Again, it, for like any Ethereum people, um, the closest thing to Comet is basically going to be the Ethereum finality gadget. Um, it's kind of like Comet is uh, 
is like just the finality gadget. We really like center that and make that like the whole um, consensus protocol. Got it. Uh, and how do how can we think about validators and the other actors in the Comet BFT, uh, net, uh, you know, sub sub component of Cosmos? Uh, Comet BFT, uh, like any other public blockchain, has validators. They uh, it's a proof of stake chain, so it, they look and feel in some ways similar to Ethereum. The main there's a couple differences. One of the differences is there is explicit delegation in the Cosmos, like proof-of-stake architecture. So if I'm a token holder on Osmosis, I can stake that token with a... I, I do not have to run a machine myself. I can stake my tokens um, to, a uh, to a validator, um, and they are going to vote in the consensus protocol on my behalf. You, you end up getting something very similar in Ethereum with liquid staking. We can go into that if you want. But. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, kind of like Rocket Pool built in, but maybe not as much architecture because it's exactly. built Exactly. So we, like, Cosmos kind of like realized or like, yeah, believed that not everybody was going to want to participate in consensus. And in fact, it wouldn't really be practical for everyone to participate in consensus mm -hmm. given the architecture of the network. And so, okay, we're going to have people delegate and uh, really the, the kind of design philosophy around that is like we, we are entrusting specific actors to run the infrastructure of the network but um, so we're creating we're creating a two-tier like two different roles in the system um, but the delegators need to be holding the validators to to account so they delegators should be able to run a light client to see that validators are doing their job correctly um, and they should be able to to delegate away from validators that are that are not performing well, and, and um, not, so not performing the, well would be lack of uptime and even I don't know false attestations or something. Or what what would bad behavior be for a, a delegated validator? Yeah, so it could be um, uh, it could be missing blocks, so lack lack of uptime. It could be uh, uh, potentially <clears throat> slowing down the network, like. Uh, um, attesting late, mm, mm. Uh, it, it it actually is very dependent on what the network, what the, the chain does. So, right, um, if it's a, if it's a dex, and the dex is um, uh, kind of has the the shared principle that like there shouldn't be any front running, validators shouldn't be doing that. Delegators and it, it is observed that a validator does do that. Whether they allow that, then a delegate delegator could delegate away. So this is kind of an interesting. Uh, I mean, it's a very powerful accountability mechanism, and it it actually allows uh, for delegators to kind of like expect more of their validators. Um, you can kind of make them do um, very specific operations. But, but the so action, of, the action of delegating away, still has to go through the validators, right? So if if there were if validation was centralized sufficiently, they could censor the delegation away. No. Uh, yeah, I mean. Only a single uh, entity needs to like submit the transaction to the mempool, and one well one third of the network could uh, collude to censor transactions. But I've, I've never seen that in practice. If that happened, the user could basically yell at 
you on Twitter and like tell you that this is happening. So there's a. Uh, so you I think there's actually one third is enough to censor transactions. Yes, and this differs. So this comes to like the the kind of key trade off in the consensus protocol design. <clears throat> These liveness favoring networks uh, have a fifty percent thresholds um, for censorship resistance and. BFT networks have safety favoring have a one third threshold, so the threshold is lower. This is like a, a yeah fundamental. That's a big um, counterintuitive limitation. Yeah, is, uh, is it also, not? Is, uh, well, if one third one third is less than half, but it's you said it's safety favoring. So one third is less than half, but it's safety favoring. This is for censorship resistance. Okay. Um, so this doesn't really have a bearing on the. Uh, the agreement of what the state is. Okay, so there's a trade-off in censorship, or like the the threshold for censoring goes down, but the ultimate um, security of the ledger goes up. Yes, the you have a higher assurance that the uh, if the state machine advances, it will uh, it it will be like the correct state. You'll never revert to something else, uh, but you are trading off the ability to advance the state and uh, the ability to like continue block production. And uh, the, that, that's kind of like married to the ability to submit transactions. So censorship resistance. So this is what you're saying about if there's some disagreement, the chain will halt, but the data in the chain will be you know, very, very secure, but it's more likely to halt than, than, uh, say Ethereum. Yes, exactly. Very cool. Sounds kind of like anyone the, uh, interested in this yeah. should like look up the cap theorem. I mean, that's like the kind of core theoretical results or like the FLP theorem. Okay. I'm going to look that up. So, okay. And in your post on the MakerDAO forum or the Maker forum, you, talk about the importance of this delegator validator relationship. Uh, is there anything else to say on that that's important to know? I can talk about that a bit. Uh, it, it, it is, yeah, it's definitely like a Cosmos superpower. And I, I wrote another post on this that was like more of an, in an MEV context because I do a lot of MEV stuff uh, at Skip. And so I can kind of like talk through that example. Yeah, please. So we've been working a bunch with DYDX, which is a derivatives protocol that is now building in Cosmos. And they are they have a very interesting architecture that they've chosen where they have validators, they have, they have all validators um, hold an order book off-chain. And so there's no singular order book. It's a it's a subjective order book, basically. And um, they gossip uh, updates to the order book to one another. And um, this is uh, the this is kind of scary in some ways because the the order book is very it, it's integral to the like fairness of the system. Um, so validators could manipulate the order book uh, by excluding certain transactions or prioritizing um, certain transactions over the other over others. They can withhold transactions from propagating them to, to other validators. Um, and what we um, what we've done is we basically kind of created this. Um, globally distributed uh, observability system where we at, uh, collect copies of the order book from different validators and, and kind of statistically reconstruct like 
whether validators are um, performing their uh, their duties correctly. So you're almost rating their um, honesty in the gossip protocol. Yeah, they're and they're got. Uh, with respect to gossip and the the kind of actions that they perform with their local copy order book, and um, but but we can't uh, directly attribute um, any specific action as malicious. So in aggregate, over time, we can say that this validator is doing something funny. Got it. <clears throat> but we can't at any point be like this one action was uh, malicious. You're saying you can't you can't do it because you can't be sure that they didn't that they got the message or that or you can't do it for a cryptographic reason. We can't do it because uh, yeah we, we don't have like full observability into like their what's happening on their machine and and like there could be network latency. There's just like <clears throat> there's little reasons that like that some of these these anomalies could happen, but over time, if if a validator is being malicious, they're going to like you know they would continue doing that and we can say, okay, you know, something's going on here. So it, it is a much weaker, you know, this, this is very different than like a smart contract system, right? Like where if something, if, if, an, if a smart contract is called, like it will execute exactly the way as intended. In this off-chain system, first of all, it's uh, all these order books are being kind of simultaneously updated um, so there's no singular view of the application state. And we can't actually be 100% certain that any specific operation has been performed exactly correctly. But we can get this aggregate kind of understanding. And so where does the validator-delegator relationship come into play? Well, if we can, if we can kind of like build this metric of, of kind of good behavior over time, then... You know, we, we basically created like a, a dashboard um, for this. This creates a, it's basically a reputation system. Right. Um, like for, for these, these, these validators are for the operators. And so when you're, when you're uh, a delegator and you're, you know, you're presented with this, you're like, okay, well, am I going to delegate to the operator that's like fucking me over? Or am I going to delegate to the one, ones that are, you know, actually performing their duties. So it's, it's more than a brand name list. It's a, it's a statistical analysis of their past behavior for you to choose who you want to yeah. delegate to. Cool. But, and, a, but it reflects on their brand. And, and and you can layer on like slashing and stuff like that. To the, I mean, that's something that the DYDX community is kind of just um, discussing now. But even without it, we actually think that there's, it's quite a powerful mechanism because... Um, Primarily because it's not even restricted to just the DYDX chain. So, if I'm Chorus One uh, on the DYDX network, my brand as a validator is like super, super important um, because I attract delegations as Chorus One. The and if I'm screwing around on DYDX, that is actually going to to kind of indirectly impact me on all the other networks that I'm validating on, like. The, the next time that somebody goes to delegate on osmosis, they're going to be like, this course one was completely fucking around on DYDX. Like, I don't trust them. So th this kind of like weak uh, horizontal reputation layer kind of unifies Cosmos in a very interesting way. And you can, yeah, you can just leverage that to do quite powerful things. And... There, there's a really interesting 
phenomenon in Cosmos where like validators will kind of spontaneously do things that to help the network. Like they build dashboards, they they do all the IBC relaying. They actually all all the IBC relaying is like done for free today for, for the most part. And it's it's kind of like I want to build my brand reputation and like kind of do right by the network because it's important for my business. Um, it's important for my reputation. Um, so so it becomes kind of a loss get, leader for... Those get figured into the statistical analysis? No, uh, not in this case. But I'm saying that the this DYDX... We are uh, kind of defining this metric in the DYDX case. Uh, you know, Are you messing with the order book on DYDX? But it, it kind of contributes to this like overarching you know, brand reputation of the validator. Like, I'm a validator who's done, you know, performed really well on DYDX. I'm also like relaying on, you know, from DYDX to Osmosis. And I made this other, like, staking rewards, uh, you know, withdrawal system that's like really nice for delegators. Like, there's these things that like validators just like make stuff and like try to just help the network because it contributes to their their brand and and thereby their business. These are the operate, so, operators, to be very specific? Yes, the validators, the, the operators, the network. Why are there multiple order books in the DYDX example? Why is there not a single uh, order book and then it's just a matter of propagating it across all of the nodes? Why have separate order books? So um, DYDX explored putting the order book on chain, but basically the... Uh, the order book needs to be updated one or two orders of magnitude faster than like any block time like available today. Mm. And okay. So, you know, that basically like the inclusion there was like, okay, we we can't do this on chain. And if you're not going to have it on chain, well, now who is going to hold it? The current version of DOIDX that's built on Starkware, DOIDX is holding the order book. And they're being trusted to, to kind of perform those order book updates correctly. However, they just can't continue to do that right. um, and claim the system is decentralized. So they, yeah, they set up a system where um, many actors are are holding the order book, and it's kind of a, you know interfaces with the the consensus process to ensure that that there's uh, at least some degree of, of, uh, of agreement between different order books. And, and, and that's a part of their implementation of the Comet BFT or part of their uh, communications protocol design? Or it's just a, a separate? Um, so it's, uh, the order book system is separate. Um, it is, you can basically think about it as a, um, uh, I, I mean, it, it is their mempool effectively like they've kind of written their own mempool that integrates this order book system so, so that wouldn't fall n- neatly into uh, any of the three categories we uh, described earlier the consensus protocol the application framework and its vm or the communications protocol this is a, a, like a separate piece or it's one of those so comet pft has a kind of out of the box mempool yeah we're, we're getting we're going deep it's now. good that's um, what we're here for <laughs> so um, Comet BFT has a default mempool, um, and the way that a um, 
that any consensus protocol works, uh, let's just stick to BFT for a second, is there are, yeah, there are basically votes. Um, so the different actors in the system, and they, um, they vote on uh, what they believe to be true, uh, you know, in order to advance the system. And uh, so there's these kind of, uh, and, and there's actually multiple stages of voting. So um, you have these kind of this interleaved process where uh, first everybody needs to communicate with each other. Uh, so there's like a kind of end to end communication process where everybody tries to like get the same information from from each other about how the system is, you know, what transactions are available basically. Okay. Um, and then a proposer, uh, typically there's one proposer, will say, hey, okay, I got these transactions and I'm the person who's been nominated to build the next block. I'm going to construct my block and distribute that to all the other validators. All the other validators can, they have already done a round of communication with each other so they can uh, compare that to their local set of transactions, be like, yes, this makes sense to me. I'm going to sign that proposed block and then distribute it to, uh, and then um, send, yeah, basically like send that back to the network. And so you basically go through these like rounds of voting and or, you know, gossip and then voting, gossip and then voting in order to ensure that you are both getting all the information that you need as a consensus participant and uh, validating that everyone else is kind of in agreement with with your local perspective of the network. So, so this is kind of uh, tantamount to, in the L2 space, the decentralized sequencing problem. And I suppose there is an Ethereum solution for this too. I'm not super familiar with how... I, I don't really understand the PBS stuff in Ethereum fully. But the, the, you're trying to get to a solution where you can avoid censorship, uh, essentially. Yeah, well, I mean, this is just common to all consensus processes. A decentralized sequencer, uh, well, maybe just put, put that on hold for a second. I mean, Ethereum has a very similar system. There's a P2P layer, a mempool, validators uh, collect transactions in the mempool. They, um, they get a, a block from the proposer. They, they sign it saying that this makes sense. All that's the same. There's some slight implementation uh, differences and different consensus protocols end up having kind of like different communication overhead and sign things different ways. <clears throat> um, but that's, you know, very similar in Ethereum. Note, your original question was about the mempool. Yes. Well, what what is the mempool? The mempool is, it's, it's, kind of, it's, a, it's an abstraction that describes the collective subjective views of all validators. So there's no singular mempool. It, it is actually this like uh, this subjective phenomenon of validators like having collected all these other transactions, understanding the network to be, you know, in in this particular, uh, you know, understanding the the network being able to advance in this specific way. So, right, they use that information to be like, yeah, I'm comfortable signing this transaction or signing this proposal. How is the operator validator selected that will be the block proposer? Uh, like, I guess it, it, to to an extent, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter as much because there's this 
like um, pre-commit phase where they all confirm that they have similar data to begin with to be able to detect censorship in the proposed block. But there is some selection of who gets to be the proposer who presumably is the one mm -hmm. who's, uh, whose staker gets rewarded, right? Yeah, so in Tendermint, this is an entirely deterministic process based on, based on the uh, stake-weighted round-robin process. So yeah, basically, like if you know who is the current, current validator, and you know all of the this stake weights of all the other validators, then, and you know kind of like the uh, the array data structure that like um, the validators have been kind of like assigned to, then you can predict the next validator. Um, this is not the same as Ethereum. Um, Ethereum, uh, well, Ethereum used to be proof of work, so it'd select the validator. Uh, or select a proposer through proof of work. And that was like, you know, finding the golden nonce. Um, so very different. When they moved over to proof of stake, they, they selected a, uh, a new validator selection mechanism. Um, I know a little bit less about this. I, I know that there's like a, um, there's a kind of deterministic uh, window where um, within that window, you know, who the next validators are going going to be, um, and there's also like kind of plans to like to change this in the future, I guess, and like do single secret leader election and all that stuff. But I'm, I'm not tracking that super super closely. But active active development ongoing in Ethereum ecosystem for this, and Cosmos has a solution that um, because of this multiple rounds process allows you to check if if operators are are cheating. Yeah, you can you can check whether a block has been constructed correctly. You can check whether you can see if uh, individual transactions are constructed correctly. Uh, whether the signatures verify uh, or like correspond to, to the validators that that you know are part of the network. In in terms of censorship, um, this is this is a pretty like also quite a deep like concept. The, and it, it kind of occurs across like multiple different time scales. So if you're just talking about censorship of like a single validator, no, if you know in advance what the valid, who the validator is going to be, like you could do like a DDoS um, attack against them, right? Which I think is kind of what you were alluding to earlier. There is uh, there's a mitigation in Cosmos where validators can run uh, what we call sentry nodes, um, which is kind of like a it's almost like a personal uh cloudflare kind of thing like cdn like you you're setting up nodes that um you're separating the nodes that that accept transactions from the nodes that uh that gossip transactions and uh and you can route between them so uh you you don't necessarily know like someone may ddos like one of these nodes but you could still like gossip through the others hmm. very cool so that's one there's also a bunch of there's like threshold signed validators similar to like dbt stuff in ethereum um that also like helps with uh, can help with censorship resistance it all could also can hurt in some configurations uh, th and then there's uh kind of censorship resistance over like many blocks which yeah maybe we won't go into that because that's the whole if people want to look that thing. up is there is there just a tag something they can google well some of the most interesting stuff i think has been on uh 
uh, censorship resistant, kind of measuring the cost of censorship resistance uh, over for, for a certain duration. The this became kind of acute, or like the Ethereum community became like more acutely aware of this uh, with the OFAC censorship right. stuff. And so there, there's a whole bunch of ETH research um, discussions about censorship. If you do like censorship OFAC in ETH research, you'll probably come up with like a whole bunch of things right. that are pretty relevant. And, and that's relevant to Cosmos too, all that, that same thinking. Yeah, a, a lot of... Uh, there's definitely a, a kind of informal correspondence to a lot of the research going on between Cosmos and Ethereum. Uh, so do you think we covered Comet BFT sufficiently or is there any other main <laughs> discussion of Comet BFT that we should get get to before moving on? Well, the one of the like really important thing things to know about Comet that like is kind of like why you might want to build in Cosmos is you you get access to the consensus process as an application developer. So like I was saying, um, Tenderman, uh, so DYDX like uh, opted not to use Comet's mempool, right? They're like, we're going to scrap that, we're going to write our own that has this very specific property. And we're going to, one of the things about Comet is that it has a very sophisticated interface that basically allows you to interact with any validator individually at any point in the consensus process. So say there's 100 validators, there's kind of four-ish steps of consensus, like gossip, vote, gossip, vote. Um, you can address any single validator at any point in time during the consensus process and make them do something. Um, that can be part of your application design. So what, what, why would I want to do that? So... In the DYDX case, they they want val individual validators to be doing something with the order book, for instance, because everybody's got a different view of the order book. Some of the stuff that we're doing with Skip is we're we're kind of making this a little bit more programmable and like providing some some kind of standard applications that interact with the consensus process. So one one thing we're doing is making it so that validators. So, so a lot of these applications need a, an oracle. They want an oracle. But oracles kind of suck, just period. They're really, really hard to get right. Mm. And one of, the, one of the issues with oracles, there's many, but one of them is they're typically asynchronous with, the, with consensus. So like when, you do a, when you're using like a chain link oracle um, on Ethereum mainnet, you don't know that there's going to be an update at block at 1,000. All you can do is like wait for the next update to occur or just use the last update that's and not necessarily have an understanding that it, that it is the current state of the world. What we're, so we built like an Oracle system that makes it so that every single block, every single validator must post an Oracle update. So it is, it is integrated directly into the consensus process. The, the consensus cannot advance if the validators uh, have not produced a fresh update. So, you're, so mm. then what happens is your application can now depend on a fresh price feed or whatever every single block, um, and you don't have to do this kind of like async logic to, 
and there's a lot of like there's a lot of complexity produced to like accommodate this like asynchronous behavior of the the oracle updates that like you no longer have to, to worry about at all and so the chain would not advance if uh, if we don't get a fresh uh, oracle uh, update yes exactly i mean this is programmable so you can sure, like sure. you can have different conditions here but like that uh at if an application developer like chooses to to kind of to make that a safety property of the system like i do not want the application state to advance without this new oracle update they can do that got it okay amazing i, I in passing dydx i mean very willing to try out <laughs> pretty deep uh, projects development projects to make their project oh, yeah. work across different ecosystems it's uh, it's pretty impressive totally i've been super impressed with them we we had to do a lot of of onboarding because I mean Cosmos just has like an insanely deep stack. Yeah. But I mean they they are, you know, highest quality team out there for sure. And I I don't know. I mean they they're like the most successful derivatives protocol, decentralized derivatives protocol, and they're just like, yeah, we're gonna blow up our existing system and build an entirely new one. Um, I'm Really impressive. Very cool. And not only a new version, but on entirely, I mean, this is the second time they've switched blockchains and with very radically yeah. different architectures. It's pretty cool. They're not just switching to uh, totally. some new rollup or something. They're really rewriting everything and rethinking everything. Very cool. Uh, okay, so I think we, we did a good uh, tour of Comet BFT. Uh, there's lots of extra questions, things about fees and, and more details on the mempool or block proposing, but I think this is a good overview. And maybe if anyone's listening and, and, and wants more detail, uh, you can send Sam a message and, and, and we'll get Sam back for, for another call for deeper Yeah, this just became a Comet BFT discussion <laughs> mainly. Let's try to run through a couple other things before the end of the hour. So Cosmos SDK, uh, this is the maintained by binary builders. Uh, is mm-hmm. it, and it's one option for the application framework, but of course, yeah. this is Cosmos. You're not required <laughs> to use this one. Yeah. And maybe so, Cosmos SDK. What does it give me as a as a developer? What 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 affordances does it have, and why might I want to deviate from it? Yeah. So it, it lets you build a, a state machine. It has hooks into Comet BFT out of the box. Um, so. The way, so for instance, the way that DYDX wrote their mempool was they actually wrote the mempool in in the Cosmos SDK and uh, and kind of passed that information back into Comet. So you know it's like writing an application like server side instead of like application side or something like that. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean it's an extremely advanced system. It, this is where the proof of stake module. Uh, like proof stake system is written. Um, although you can rip that out and write your own, people have written like POA or like different variants of proof of stake. Uh, it has built-ins for you know basic operations like signature signature verification. Although again, you can add your own stuff. It's uh, it has the it, it it is an application framework. So if you're if you use like a JavaScript application framework like React or something like that, it's a similar kind of idea. There is a a kind of central like message bus. There's a, a built-in uh, data store uh, which you know writes things to uh, to a Merkle tree. There's also a, a kind of sidecar database that um, does indexing. So you you have a uh, you can access uh, you can do reads from the 
the um, the Merkle tree without actually like traversing the tree. And yeah, I mean, it's just like incredibly flexible. So, so you can write your own governance system. You can... So for for EVM heads, this is like the equivalent of the EVM uh, and maybe parts of the graph or at least the event emission and then indexing over that. This gives you the, the, what, what an EVM dev might think of as the EVM. Not really. Uh, it, the EVM is a virtual machine. So it is it, it is a kind of Turing complete like metered environment. I mean, li- literally, the, the best analogy I think is like the EVM is is kind of like, or this virtual machine environment is kind of like user space, or literally like a VM on your computer. Like you're like in that world, and it's all sandboxed, and you can do whatever you want in that world, but it like doesn't like doesn't touch the external world unless you you do like very specific uh, write operations or whatever. So, so you're, it's not on chain. Everything that's happening in this uh, Cosmos SDK. No, it's on chain. Um, the so basically, a lot of what you're doing with the SDK is similar to rebuilding Geth itself. Like, you are um, if you want to change the RPC structure, if you want to change the database backend, if you want to change. Okay, so, so the node software basically is the Cosmos SDK. The node, the node software, yes. Notably, the EVM is like glued into Geth, right? Like it's part of Geth. It's all like consensus is formed on like Solidity or like bytecode operations in Geth. But under the hood, in uh, there's also yeah these these like uh, you're writing to the Merkle like the the Patricia tree, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so in Cosmos in Cosmos SDK. If you wanted to like rip out the Merkle tree and put a new one in because it has like a different, you know, a more optimized data structure, or whatever, you can do that. Like you can, you can go, it's like writing kernel modules basically. So, you know, similar to like if you were to program in Linux or something, like I'm, I'm going to like rewrite the Linux kernel to like have different drivers and, you know, to, to literally like change the, the like user uh, permission permissioning system. Um, I'm gonna, you, you know, you, when you're at that level, you can do, you can do anything you want. Right, you're like right. di- you're interacting directly with with the hardware. So common SDK, so common BFT is the consensus and Cosmos SDK or this application framework. If you use something alternative to Cosmos SDK, is both the VM and all the rules for how to make use of that consensus protocol in Comet BFT. So really, you're interacting with the, the node software is this application framework level, the, the Cosmos SDK level. Yeah. Yeah. So if people want to get involved in Cosmos, I just don't want to make things too um, fluid or vague. So if people mm-hmm. want to get involved in Cosmos uh, or try things out, Cosmos SDK is like the first place to start. It gives you a, a sensible default for... Uh, starting to think about what your application chain might be like? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of ways to get started. If you're an EVM dev, then uh, you can like deploy things to the Cosmos chain that has the EVM. So um, two, two of those chains are, or there's a couple of them. There's Kronos, uh, um, the crypto.com chain, um, Evmos, and uh, Barachain, which is coming soon. Those are all like different EVM chains. If you want to like, 
you, you know, you're not gonna have kind of like a full Cosmos experience there. You're, but like, if you want to dip your toes in the water, just like deploy some you want, contracts to that. Easy. Cosm Wasm is another VM, the Wasm VM that's like a little bit more IBC native, like Cosmos native, and has kind of operations that are serviced that <clears throat> help you interact with that. So you could write a Rust-based contract, compile it to Wasm, and deploy it to Neutron or Osmosis or something like that. If you want to get into this like Cosmos SDK level, the like kernel level, I would recommend going to tutorials.cosmos.network. And there's like a it's it's a pretty extensive introduction with you know where you're like building your own application. Um, has a lot of like background info on on the way things work. And uh, and you could also like get started as a, a validator, um, which is you know, a good way to kind of understand like the social layer and, and the underlying mm-hmm. operations. So the Cosmos yeah. SDK, just before we, we jump off that topic, um, w- what language is it written in and what language what languages are available to me if I want to make changes to it or, or propose an mm-hmm. alternative? Uh, it's written in Go. Um, although, uh, like I mentioned before, it, it has this kind of module system and we... One of the things that binary is working on right now is making it so that you can actually like write modules in um, another language. So you might be able to do like Rust and just have it like interact through a kind of shared message bus. So anything that compiles down to Wasm or, or something else? No, it could be anything. I mean, it, it, in this case, it I and mean, this is still like highly experimental feature, but for, for the most part, it is a, a GoLang based application framework. But like any application framework, you can right. you, you can create like a... You can talk to it from something else. Yeah, you can talk to it through a common interface and then you can program that in whatever you want. So you know, there's kind of like a modularization of the application that's starting to happen in Cosmos SDK. Okay, so you could plug in some additional functionality in the same way you could like, uh, you know, add a precompile to your own L2. Uh, you can, it, this is even yeah. more affording for that uh, deliberately in, in its design. Okay, so that's yeah. the that's the application layer, and just I know we're kind of running out of time, but I, I don't want to miss IBC <laughs> inter blockchain communication. This is the third big piece, yeah. aside from I guess the client development tooling stuff. There's like mm-hmm. JS tooling for building front ends and things. We, we won't talk about that, but that exists. Uh, but for IBC, um, so it's maintained by Interchain Foundation. Yeah, Interchain Foundation and uh, Informal are like kind of primary contributors. Although there's a bunch, Strange Love, um, Skip also contributes in some ways. Okay, and this is the this is the transport layer. This is the the communications layer between Cosmos implementations. Yeah, it or between Cosmos chain implementations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The there's there's a lot to say about IBC. It, it is kind of the it's I think it's the thing that like Cosmos ecosystem developers in the Cosmos ecosystem are kind of like most proud of. Mm. It's um it's you know it's a very like elegant design. So what does it do, like very high level? What does it do? So it is, it's a, it's a couple things at once. Um, it is a standard messaging uh, protocol. So it defines, similar to a normal networking protocol, you'll, you'll have things like ports and packets and things like that. Um, so it defines the, the semantics of those things uh, and then allows for kind of an extensible layer of applications. So SMTP uh, is a application standard that is uh, leverages 
the underlying TCP IP messaging standard, right? So in order for an SMT packet to be understood on both sides, you need both sides to have the SMT like application installed, basically. So same idea, you have networking protocol or like a messaging protocol that allows for extensible application protocols. Uh, and then you have a transport layer. So there's a, these entities called relayers, um, off-chain actors that basically ferry these messages across, uh, across from one chain to another. And then you have uh, auth- authentication of packets from one side to the other. And the way that we do authentication is through these light client proofs. And we're actually extending this to like full, full chain verification proof. So like both consensus and execution. Um, so you can literally like run a, a succinct like full node on, on the other chain. What do you mean by and that? Then, so this, this is very similar to the roll-up bridge conversation. If anyone's okay. familiar with Ethereum, like the, there's this like fraud proof versus ZK proof distinction. Like what's going on there? Like basically what's happening is uh, a proof is constructed that the, according to the application rules, the state machine rules, a computation has executed correctly. It's advanced the state machine in the correct way. And it's providing that proof to Ethereum, right? Same thing in Cosmos, except it's bilateral. So not only is one chain providing proof that it executed uh, this operation correctly, it's getting proofs from the other side. And so, so there's no single source of truth here. It's like, you're in a kind of consensual relationship between different chains. You're verifying one another's state. Um, if there are any updates to the application, like the, the way that the application should run, then those should be communicated to the other side. And um, you know, then you can validate those, um, those rules moving forward. So this is what you were saying uh, quite a bit earlier in the conversation about one Cosmos chain being able to validate information on another Cosmos chain before incorporating it into its own chain. Yes, exactly. And one of the cool things, one of the kind of mind-blowing things about this is the so there's one one block finality on every single Cosmos chain that's running Comet BFT. So the communication, so so message can be sent on one chain, received on another chain, um, and it is final um, immediately upon receipt. And that whole process, depending on the speed of the chain, it could it could be anywhere between like six and like one second. So you're getting you know it'd be similar to like bridging back to Ethereum in like one second. And because, you, it, because it's able to essentially execute the other chain's VM inside yes, of IBC or validate or validate that it was executed correctly. And this works. It, the the topology of the network like there's no like singular root of trust. So I I can make that same I can perform that same operation, like a send a packet somewhere to any other chain. So and this is kind of in contrast to Ethereum where you like you need to go back to the main chain and then you need to go into the canonical bridge of the other chain. Like no, you just go straight from one chain to the other. And those chains validate that those operations were were performed correctly on the other side. 
does, does a chain need to be set up like permissioned to accept data from another particular chain or they all natively immediately support this and you can push from one to another without the other anticipating that push? Uh, it, immediate, so anyone can set up a connection to any other chain, uh, completely permissionless. Um, you can set up, uh, yeah, and individual chains can like gate stuff if they really want to, mm -hmm. but you can form a new connection between any chain. It, it would be like deploying a new canonical bridge. Like a, a user can like deploy a new canonical bridge or whatever to, to a new permissionlessly. chain. Permissionlessly. And maybe just like one thing I'll leave, leave you with is like the, I mean, IBC is, IBC is very advanced. So like the, the things that we're starting to do now are like multi-chain atomic flows. So like, this is a lot of the stuff that Skip's doing right now. Like, I I want to perform an operation that requires touching five different chains. So I send a transaction here, I swap it here into another token, I send it over here, I sign something over here, and then I like, I don't know, like stake it into this, or like bond it into this thing over here. The user signs one transaction on the origin and this kind of cascade of like multi-chain interactions, like all um, is executed atomically. And yeah, I mean, it's... Extremely cool. Yeah, it's it's a little, it's a, it's complicated, but like the the kind of capabilities you get with this are, are pretty extraordinary. And it's basically IBC is the advanced technology that allows you to do that. Yes. Very cool. Just a couple very quick questions before you go. What's the most popular programming language for people in Cosmos? Or is there such a thing? So at the smart contract level, um, Rust, people typically use Cosmosm, um, Swasm, VM. Uh, at this kernel level, uh, Go is typically the most common. Although some of the, yeah, like I was saying, that there's, there's like other frameworks that are coming out. So there, there's also like Rust stuff available and it, you can really like mix and match in Cosmos. Is there such a thing as a Cosmos wallet? Uh, kind of. At least as an entry there, point for people who want to experiment? Uh, yeah, so I mean, the two wallets that I, I think are really, uh, I, I use most often are Kepler, uh, K-E-P-L-R, and um, Leap Wallet. Um, they're both excellent. You should, uh, you should try them both out. And those would generally work across Cosmos chains or only chains that support some specific application structure? Uh, those will work across all Cosmos chains. Also, um, one of the things I've been working on recently is getting MetaMask to support Cosmos, which they now do. So if you have a MetaMask wallet, you can use any Cosmos chain. Very cool. Is that, is that based on Snaps? Snaps, yes. Awesome. Wow, that's exciting. Okay. Uh, this was a wonderful conversation, Sam. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. And I hope we can get you back yeah. uh, to talk more uh, of the nitty gritty on IBC because I, I think there's a lot to learn from it and uh, probably pretty enticing to EVM devs to hear about things like atomic transactions across five chains, uh, especially as we head into uh, or head out of L2 summer. Um, yeah, very interesting. This was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Always happy to talk about this stuff. Sorry we took up 90% of the call on... <laughs> BFT, no, it, was, it was worth I it. I hope it was educational. <laughs> it was worth it. I'm going to have to get you back on. Uh, if you enjoyed right. this show, uh, bug me and Sam about uh, getting him back on because this was a great conversation. And uh, if you're interested in this conversation, also come back Friday for a couple more episodes. I think Forum DAO, 
uh, and also Rhea Myers is going to be on at 5 p.m. Eastern time oh, lovely. Uh, on Friday, which, yes, you're friends, right? Yeah, say hi to her for me. Will do. Will do. I'm very excited. I'm, I'm, I'm rifling through her book to, to be up to date on all of her work from the past 10 years. Amazing. So it's going to be a great conversation. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and see you Friday. Thanks, Sam. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 Galaxy Brain. To keep up with everything Web3, follow me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. You can find links to the topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. Podcast feed links are available at web3galaxybrain.com. Web3 Galaxy Brain airs live most Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC on Twitter Spaces. I look forward to seeing you there.